Our scripture passage this morning is in John 14, verses 25 through 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would, have, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Josh Stewart, and it's my joy to serve you this morning. Uh, I, I'm incredibly thankful to be here. I'm a member at Providence Church, and there are many people who I love dearly who have been impacted by the ministry of Christ Redeemer Church. Uh, I, Arch, I love your pastor. He's one of my best friends, and uh, I, I've, I've walked with him as I saw the Lord bring him to you and you to him, and I, I, I'm just thankful to serve the people here today. Thank you, Arch. When Arch called and asked me to preach, I started to think about what would be most helpful. I was listening to Philippians and reflecting on what I could bring in a standalone sermon that would point us to Christ and encourage your hearts. And I had a phone call with Arch where he said, hey, maybe, maybe just find a gospel text and just help us see Jesus in it. So I did what I do when I need to see Jesus more clearly is I, I, I went to the Gospel of John. And honestly, I thought, you know what? High priestly prayer. Love that text. I preached when I was in student ministry. Let me go through there. But like any good expositor of the word, got to know the context. So I started way back in John 13 and started reading. As I read of what was going on in this moment, I stopped here because I saw something beautiful. I saw the king of the universe here in the flesh in the moments where he's about to be betrayed and ultimately crucified. And he's caring for his friends. I saw the beauty of Jesus who humbled himself to be a servant. And he was concerned with the sorrows and fears of his people. And as often happens when we read our Bibles, I realized Jesus is a lot better than I think he is. I don't give him the credit he deserves. A.W. Tozer has famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this is a really helpful insight. This is the whole point of right theology. The way we think about God and the way we think about the Christian life impacts everything that we do. This is why this matters. But unfortunately, as a result of the fall, our default view of God in our hearts is negative. We do not see God rightly. We do not take him at his word. Pastor Dane Ortland is helpful here. He's written something in his book, Gentle and Lowly, that I think helps explain our heart condition. He says this, the Christian life from one angle 
is the long journey of letting our natural assumption about who God is fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is really merciful and gracious, slow to anger. He says the fall in Genesis 3 not only sent us into condemnation and exile, it also entrenched our minds in dark thoughts of God. Thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. And hear this with clear ears, because this, ever since I read it, this truth has always stuck with me. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the low thoughts of God that led us there in the first place. I'm convinced that Dane Ortland is right here. And I imagine that this is one of the biggest struggles that all of us face in this room. We simply don't think Jesus is as good as he truly is. Our fears, our burdens, and the cares of the world tend to dim the glory of Jesus in our eyes. In the process of our daily lives, we tend to construct this kind of stale, boring Jesus that makes sure we want to read our Bibles and do Christianized things. But in reality, we're fascinated with the world and we're bored with Jesus. I know that's true in my heart. I imagine that's true in yours. And I don't want that for you. I sure don't want it for me. And the good news of this text is that thankfully for both of us, God does not want that for his people. In John 14, 25 to 31, we will see the ministry of Jesus on display for us to see clearly who he is. Today, we're going to explore this text and first see Jesus caring for his disciples. And then I want us to pull back and reflect on how should we respond to this ministry. But I'm hopeful as we look at God's word, that God's spirit will do what he delights to do all the time. Help us to see Jesus clearly. And I was telling Arch, I, I can't do that. That's the beauty of uh, gospel ministry. We desperately want to do something that we don't have the power to do. So I want to invite you to pray with me as we ask God to help us see his son. Father, help me to do what I cannot do on my own. You know that I want to declare the greatness of Christ from this text, and yet I strain for words. It is not my words that do a thing, but it is your word. And so would you, by the Spirit, do what you delight in doing, which is helping us see the beauty of your Son and the reconciliation we have with you and the joy that can be found in living in the love of the Trinity. Do this within your people today so we might see you as you truly are and worship you as you truly deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want us to see in this text is the ministry of Jesus. Our text is in the early parts of what's known in the Gospel of John as the Farewell Discourse. It might be more appropriately named the See You Soon Discourse because Jesus comes back, and that's good news for us. But it starts in John 13, 31, and it goes all the way through John 1726. And in these verses, we have a record of the final moments that Jesus has with his disciples before he's ultimately betrayed, arrested, and crucified. And short of the crucifixion event itself, 
I have to imagine that this long conversation has to be one of the hardest times in the disciples' experience with Jesus. Because think about it. Here they are, their Lord they love, who's just washed their feet, who's just eaten the Passover meal but did some things differently, showing them a little bit more truly that he is the Passover lamb who has come to be slain. Everything's probably good. Then he says, someone's going to betray me. They don't know who. They see Judas eat a piece of bread and then walk out the room. And then Jesus all of a sudden looks at them and says, now's the time for God to be glorified. I will leave you. And where I go, you cannot come. Imagine hearing this. To hear your Lord and your friends say this, they are scared and they are sad. Jesus says later on in this, I know that these words have given your hearts full of sorrow. And it's in this scenario of fear and confusion and disorientation about what's going to happen to me. We zoom in and we see the ministry of Jesus. So look at verse 25 with me. The first thing we see in the ministry of Jesus is that he promises the Holy Spirit. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You see, the farewell discourse has a specific objective, to comfort, encourage, and prepare the disciples before Jesus is ultimately crucified. And even though Jesus knows that he's about to suffer, again, who is his attention on? What would your attention be on if you know that your best friend, one of your best friends, was about to betray you and you were going to die? Most of us would probably be on self-preservation, but look at the beauty of God and how he's not like us. He's focused on the sorrow of his people. Like a father who, before going on a long trip, and his children are sad that he's leaving, and he, and he comes and they might be crying and the family's sad, but what does he do? He lifts the chin up and makes sure that there's eye contact and he gives them words of comfort. And then he gives them instructions. Until I return, here's what you are to do. It's a very small picture that helps us see a little bit of what's going on here. Jesus is about to leave and he's giving them instructions. And the first thing I have to imagine is they're like, well, wait, if you leave, what do we do? Think about it. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Imagine you, you're hearing this live. Your whole life for the last three years since Jesus saw you and said, hey, come follow me, has been governed by his instructions. When he says do this, you go. His words have been reshaping your view of life, your view of God. And while they're incredibly broken in the way that they understand it, they have come to learn and depend on the bread of life. So the question has to be in their hearts, will the manna keep coming? If you leave, who's going to teach us? And the thing that I love and that really helps me emphasize, or, or that what I see emphasizes, uh, what Jesus emphasizes in the text is the word but here. The but is helpful because he's making comparison. Look at the text here. He says, look, while I'm here with you, I'm saying these things. But someone else is going to come to help you, and he'll tell you everything. 
So what we're seeing here is Jesus is in essence saying, look, I'm telling you what you need to know for today, but I will send the Spirit who will help you with tomorrow. Jesus earlier in John 14 has told them, I'm not leaving you as orphans, as people who are left to fend for themselves, as people who are discouraged and unprovided for and unprotected. Jesus says, I'm not like that. The Father will send the Spirit. And friend, this is what he says, the Spirit will point you to me. So Jesus comforts the disciples in the midst of this fear by showing them, I will send the Spirit to you and the teaching ministry, the leadership, the love that I've shown you will continue in the person work of the Holy Spirit. Second, Jesus promises peace. He comforts them by telling them that he will give them peace. If you look at verse 27, it says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. It would have been common for friends in Jewish culture back then to give a farewell blessing. A go in peace is what they would often say. We do this today still. We say things like, hey, hope you have a good day tomorrow. Or I'll see you later. But the reality is, we don't know. We don't know if we're ever going to see each other again. We have no ability to actually make them have a good day. All we can do is wish. All the Hebrews could do is wish and wish this blessing on them, but ultimately they're dependent on the Lord to give them a good day or to help them walk in peace. But Jesus is different. See, Jesus is departing, and he, he ramps up this departing blessing. Instead of just saying, go in peace, he says, I leave you with peace. My peace I give to you. Notice this is a peace that far surpasses mere security or the absence of conflict. It's the peace of being made righteous with God. It's the peace of being united to God. In this whole farewell discourse, we see multiple times where Jesus describes how him and the Father are one, and then he looks at the disciples and says, and you get to be a part of that. And in the Greek, this is a present action here. So in his words to them, he is actually comforting them. He's doing what he declares. There's no wishful thinking here. He is giving them peace as he says, here is my peace. Isn't that good news for us? Because today, that's been recorded right here for you and me. So that no matter what circumstance we go through, we also can have the peace of Jesus by coming to the word written by the Spirit. That's not all. Jesus says, I do not give like the world. We learn that the peace that Jesus gives flows out of the generosity of his heart. We talk about having too low of a view of Jesus. I have to wonder if so often we struggle with thinking that Jesus is really good and kind and generous. And instead we think he's stingy. Let that question, do I think Jesus is stingy? Just settle. Ask it in the way that you show grace to others. Ask it in the way that you pray. Ask it in the way that you pursue him in the word. Do we think that Jesus is stingy today? If so, I invite us to come and take him at his word. He says, I'm not stingy. You've maybe heard uh, the phrase like, hey, that's just the way the world works. 
to justify some particular action or experience. Jesus says, I'm, I'm not like the way the world works. I'm better than the world. Think of this, Jesus does not give like the world does. He doesn't intend to give them peace and then take it away later. Or give them peace and then wait until they obey and then remove it as a consequence. He gives them peace, joy, and love because that's actually rooted in him. And Jesus gives him himself, gives them himself. Jesus does not give on a contract. Jesus does not give expecting to receive. Jesus does not give because he needs something from us. He does not give to manipulate and use his people. He is not stingy or poor. He is rich and merciful and kind. And early in the Gospel of John, we see that he is full of grace and truth. And it is out of his kindness and richness that he gives. So friends, be encouraged today. These words were meant to encourage the disciples. This peace that he gives them, he's not taking away. The same can be true with us when life is crazy, either crazy busy or crazy painful. Jesus gives peace in himself, and he's not going anywhere for his people. In light of these comforts, Jesus gives them a command, an encouragement for how they are to act here at the end of verse 27. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Now this command is the primary emphasis of the farewell discourse as I see it. You see, the farewell discourse from beginning to end, it basically bookends with this. Don't be scared. Beginning, do not let your heart be troubled. At the end, take heart, for I've overcome in the world. In the middle, we have this. Don't let your heart be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What does this look like? Because frankly, if you were to ask anyone who struggles with anxiety or obsessive thinking or worrying or anything, it's like, hey, the number one way to mess me up is to tell me, don't be scared of that, right? So in our experience, what does this actually look like? Because Jesus surely can't be saying it's wrong for them to experience trouble. The word for trouble is the exact same word used to describe Jesus weeping and suffering at the grave of Lazarus. So if anything, Jesus has great compassion for what they're experiencing. So what's he getting at? Well, what we look at is this is both a passive and active command, right? Look at the word don't. That's an active word. You have to do something. Look at the word let. It's a passive word. It means to allow. So if you think of this, if I were to ask you, hey, don't let the dog out. There's some things you can do to obey that command. You could shut the door, you could put up a gate, you could tie it to a tree. But what you can't do is get in the mind of that dog and control its motive, intention, and behavior. The command is active, but it's also passive. At the end of the day, we cannot control our circumstances. We can't even control our emotions and anxieties. We can't stop our hearts from experiencing fear, but what we can do is learn to trust God in the midst of fear so that we obey and experience peace. 
Again, the Greek structure of this command is similar to other commands that feature this active and passive dynamic. Like in Romans, where it says, be transformed. That be is active. We are to do something. But the transformed is passive. God does the work. So in a similar way, what I see in this text is Jesus is inviting them to trust him more. Jesus, the king, is saying, look, don't let your hearts be full of sorrow. Trust in me. This is important because he's not asking them to just muster up something within them. He's not saying you need to grit through this and just toughen up. A quick word to dads. The Bible says do not let, like don't provoke your children to anger. That was, I think, one of Archer's first sermons here, Ephesians 5. I was in the back wrangling my kid. Uh, so often when our kids are scared, we can just say, get over it, stop it. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus comforts and he always invites and he says, come to me in your fear. That is the invitation Jesus gives. So Jesus comforts his disciples with the promise of the spirit and he promises them lasting peace. Whoops, I lost a little fluffy thing. Sorry, Arch. But the disciples also need instruction. Again, like a good father who lifts the chin and looks in the eyes and calms their child. There's still work that needs to be done. And now Jesus turns to ministering to them in another way. He's going to continue to comfort them and minister to them by reorienting them to what is true. And that's what we see next. They, we see Jesus being uh, reorienting his disciples to the joy that awaits him and to his mission. Look in verse 28 where we see him reorient them to joy. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So as Jesus' friends, the disciples should have wanted the best for Jesus, right? Good friends delight in what their friends delight in. When good things happen to friends, good friends get excited. And Jesus is pressing into that dynamic to help them ultimately see what Jesus delights in. Notice this. He's saying, look, I know you're sad because you've heard me say, I'm going away. But here's the greater thing. He's reorienting them. He's lifting their eyes upward to not focus on the fact that he's leaving, but to focus on where he's going to. And the answer is the Father. And in this text, we see a wonderful example of the God-centeredness of God. Look at this. You know how Paul in Philippians says it's better to be with Christ? This traces right on to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling his friends, guys, listen, it's better for me that I go to the Father. And what does that reveal? Think of how we do this in our own lives, right? If you find out that, you know, uh, let's say a friend is going on a vacation to the Rockies or a cruise or they just found out they're going to have a baby or get married or something, what do we tend to do if we've done that ourselves? We've experienced the goodness of it. We go, bro, you don't know what awaits you. I'm so excited for you. You have no clue what's coming. It's going to be great. Jesus does the same thing. He says, guys, I know you're sad, but you don't know what awaits me. I'm going to the Father. 
And again, I think when we look at this and just see clearly, what does Jesus treasure most? What does God delight in? Is himself above all else. John Piper has rightfully pointed out that if God delighted in anything other than himself, he would be an idolater. There is nothing more glorious and worthy of worship than the triune God. And we see this on display in this Trinitarian text where the son says, I'm going home. And if you really loved me, you'd be excited because you'd delight in what I delight in. What's mind-blowing to me as we look at this is not just that Jesus delights in the Father, but that God delights in inviting us into that delight. Later on in his prayer, Jesus is going to pray, Father, I desire that these would be with me. So let's think about life clearly here. Jesus is the perfect man, the perfect human. What does this reveal about what most satisfies the human heart? God. And what does it reveal about what most glorifies the triune God? God. Let us see clearly, if Jesus delights in God, so should we. And thankfully, by the Spirit, we can. That's not all he does. He also reorients them to the mission of what he's about to do. Look at verse 29. Now, I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus knows that his time is limited with his disciples. The hour has come and Jesus is about to be given into the hands of the enemy and he will be betrayed by Judas. And he says, look, I'm telling you all of this so that when it all goes down, you'll realize that I am the suffering servant. You'll see that I am the true Messiah and you will see the glory of God on display. Think of why this matters. Again, consider putting yourself in the shoes of the disciples. After hearing this, they are about to witness. Again, think of what Jesus says. Just one little phrase that's so helpful. Satan has no claim on me. The devil has no claim on me. Now think of how this relates with what they're about to see. They're about to see their friend come out of the woods with a mob by candle and torchlight. Take the other friend, Jesus, and take him away. They're going to see Jesus go and be tortured, accused by the people who's supposed to lead them, mocked, whipped, forced to carry his cross, covered in blood barely recognizable, and then he'll suffer for hours as he tries to breathe and as he bears the wrath of God. The one they know to be the Messiah is going to die. The one they've come to believe in is going to die. They will lose a friend and they'll scatter. And in this moment, Jesus wants them to see in all the chaos that's about to happen 
in your eyes. I'm not losing here. Notice that. This is not the victory of the devil. This is just what it looks like for me to crush the snake. It's bloody, but I'm going to win. So Jesus prepares, comforts, and reorients his disciples so that they know that Satan has not won and that he has no claim on him. And Christians, if you're here today, I just want us to see Jesus in this moment where he says, he has no claim on me. Instead, what I'm doing is I'm obeying the Father. And that you see everything that happened on Golgotha. Everything. Every step of obedience carrying the cross. Every breath until he was finished. Was him obeying his Father to save us. And because of that, this is true for you and me. This is our righteousness before our eyes. This is mind-boggling that if you look at moments like this in the Gospels and you see what Jesus does and how perfectly he obeyed the Father in love, and you compare that to yourself, it's like, I've never come close to that. That's how the Father sees me. My whole life has been wrapped up in the reality before Christ that Satan had a claim on me, but not anymore. And the same is true for you if you are in Christ, because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And so, these ending words he says of rise, let us go, again remind us that no one takes the life of Jesus. He lays it down. And why did he lay it down? In love for the Father, to show the world that he loves the Father and that the triune God loves sinners. So that's our text. What do we do with this? When you watch Jesus minister to his friends, as you observe him in this moment, like right before he's about to be betrayed and crucified, and you see him loving and caring for his people, what do you see? I hope you see Jesus is more merciful and more willing to help you in your times of trouble, as more caring than maybe you tend to view him. But let me make clear what we all have seen in the text today. God in the flesh. John records this with one purpose in mind, that you would see Jesus clearly and believe in him. That you would see him for who he is, and that the reality of who Jesus is in his ministry to his friends, would lead you to trust him and have life. So the single exhortation today is to see Jesus and respond to Jesus by trusting him. I have three very simple ways that I want to flesh this out as I've thought of how that looks like. What does it look like to trust in this type of beautiful, lovely, merciful, kind Jesus? What does it look like for the people of CRC? The first is that Jesus gives us this model for what ministry to one another can look like. If you notice, Jesus has this two movements that he kind of does, which is really helpful when caring for people. Right? Paul says there's different types of ways we need to care for different types of people. And with the fearful, we need to be gentle and patient. 
But if we're honest, sometimes the fears of those we love can just be frustrating. Look what Jesus does. Jesus never says, suck it up. Jesus never says, get over it. Jesus comforts, and then he reorients. Jesus comforts, and then he reorients. So one way we express trust in Christ is in our ministry to others. The reality is, I mean, if you just look at the stats, we're all anxious, right? Just look at the stats. Almost everyone you meet is struggling with some sort of anxiety. Let's be a people at Christ Redeemer Church who love each other well enough that it's okay for us to be afraid with each other because we know that someone on the other end is going to comfort us and then point us to Jesus. And as we do that for each other, friends, the world will see something. They'll see love, which Jesus says is the indicator that you belong to him and that he has come. So your evangelism and ministry to this community can be rooted in as simple as starting here, comforting and reorienting people to Jesus. The second thing is to trust the Lord in hardships. The Bible is incredibly clear that life is going to be hard. You are going to experience things in life that are going to knock the wind out of your sails. And it's going to come out of left field. You're going to feel just like the disciples did. Again, notice, having the Passover meal. This is normal. They've probably done this before. Then all of a sudden, I'm going to get betrayed. I'm about to leave you like this. Their world is spinning, and the same is true for you. You will get news that leaves you completely confused, disoriented, and unsure of what to do. And this text shows us that Jesus cares about that. He doesn't tell you to suck it up. He invites you to him. When I look at this, I just see a beautiful case study supporting what Peter tells us to do. Cast your anxieties on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Let this text, whatever your troubles are today, let this text show you that Jesus cares about them more than you think. And take him at his word and come to him and cast your anxieties on the God who's for you in Christ. Which leads to our last response. I want to invite all of us to respond to this text by asking God to help us see Christ for who he truly is. Again, so often, the problems in our life all flow from the fact that in our sin and unbelief, we fail to appreciate God rightly. We see this in Romans 1. The universal human condition is that we looked at God and we said, I want something else. And we behold the glory of God in the heavens and we say, nah, I'll take Netflix or whatever. In this text, we see that Jesus, the God of the universe, who every single one of us has turned away from, cares enough to comfort his people in the midst of their distress, even when he's about to go through the most distressing event in the history of time. Take him at his word. I invite you today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, to come to Jesus. 
I don't know what you've heard. I don't know what you believe. I know there's a lot of different things going on about what people might think about Jesus. But this text we've read today is a biography of Jesus. And quite frankly, I just want to say that if, I, if someone wrote a biography, if my wife over here, my sweet wife Stephanie, wrote a biography about me, or my friend Arch wrote a biography about me, and you just looked at that and said, nah, that ain't true about you, I'd say you're a fool. Where else would you go to learn about me? This woman knows me. This man knows me. John knew Jesus. He tells us he wrote about what he saw and heard and touched. So if you're here, this is what Jesus is actually like. And his word invites you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Christ for life. That was John's whole point of writing this story down. And for those of us who do know Christ, pray. Ask God to do what God loves to do. Right now, tomorrow, and every day until eternity. Is that he would help us treasure Jesus more rightly so that we could worship him more truly. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for helping us see Jesus, clearly, I pray that if there's any here who are seeing this with new eyes for the first time, that you'd comfort them by helping them know that the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict sinners of their need and then to lead them to the sweet mercy of Jesus. And Lord, we are all sinners who are desperately needy. But there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. So Father, help us by your spirit, to see him for who he is and help us to believe. In Jesus' name, amen.